it was a tough job, a stressful job, to try to keep those things uh, alive, essentially, right? Let's not mention any names. We'll leave names out of this. I guess I would have been fired eventually because everyone eventually got fired at sea. So sort of the level of experience and commitment and all those things was really going down. So a lot of the things that get written are not as good as they were when you were you, you had like three editorial levels to go through before it hit the page. And so in a way, everybody kind of got what they deserved. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it was like the last nail in the coffin of an era that had already ended by the time that I was involved in it. For 26 years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one blue-collar Canadian prairie city. This is the story of View Weekly and C Magazine, two weekly papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. This is an elegy and love letter to those papers, their rise, glory days, notorious rivalry, and eventual decline. I'm Andrew Paul. I'm Fonda Mithrash. I'm Paul Blinov. This is a tale of two weeklies. There's a quote from the pilot episode of HBO's The Sopranos that rings true to what was happening at the weeklies, at least for us who arrived in the paper's offices in the mid-2000s. In the opening scene of the series, Tony Soprano laments that he's just finally made it to the top of New Jersey's organized crime world when he realizes he's inherited a kingdom in its final throes. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came in too late for that, and I know, but lately... I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. Bad as this was for Tony's mental health, the Weekly's management teams had their own stresses. As society increasingly gathered in digital realms throughout the early 2000s, the world of print media struggled to catch up to changes wrought by the internet. There was a demand for more stories, more content on ever-emerging platforms, and advertisers were starting to explore cheaper routes of online promotion. The Weekly's like most print papers, were hit with declining ad revenue in their final years. And C and View's bitter competition to secure ads within the same local pool didn't make things easier. Though their final issues were seven years apart, both C and View's death spirals would follow similar patterns. The changes that marked the last few years of each were apparent to those who had long histories at the papers. But even those who were just starting out could feel the downward shift. But I didn't realize that I had come on to the whole, you know, me- the machine so late as like a, as a writer, but like it was already over. This is Eamon McGrath, who started writing for the weeklies while he was still in high school. He's now a published author and musician who regularly tours internationally. It was an era where you read about a record and you went and you bought the record. And the way that I talk about that, almost archaically, if you talk to people that were doing that in 1996 like they just think that's hilarious because Mm -hmm. to them it was already the like the beginning of the end it happened way before that and even thinking about it now 2004 you know if i like i think back to reading record reviews and i was reading those reviews on pitchfork i I didn't read a review of of mastodon's leviathan in like on the bus with like in the newspaper i read it like on on a computer By 2009, management was desperate for ideas on how to keep things going at the weeklies. Mastheads got smaller, space in each paper became sparse, and even more dependent on ad sales. Office morale started to plummet. Staffers were let go in various, often unceremonious ways. 
and management tried to squeeze more and more work out of the staff that remained. Others simply saw the writing on the wall and quit. Some of those cuts, firings, and trims were necessary to survive in a tougher and tougher market. But the last major brain drains from the papers manifested themselves differently. At C Magazine, it was layoffs. But back in 2008, C's masthead was still healthy, with two full-time folks in the art department, a managing editor, a city-slash-music editor, a news editor, a film-slash-theater editor, and a staff writer, all commanding teams of freelancers to cover the city as they saw fit. This was about to change drastically. Gord Nielsen had just finished his tenure as C's publisher. Nielsen had a long history at Great West Newspapers as the company's CFO, and was managing C's billing around the time that Ron Garth had run up his printing debt. As Duff Jameson, Great West president, recalls, Nielsen had always felt a connection to C. Gord was our chief financial officer. You know, he, he didn't come on to be the publisher of, uh, of C magazine, but he had always had an interest in it. You know, he loved music. He attended a lot of those events. He felt a part of that community. So um, when we were... Uh, looking at for, for a publisher at one point, it was like, you know what, Gord, you've been very interested in this whole thing the whole time, why don't you do both, right? He didn't stop being the chief financial officer, he, uh, he just added that to his things to do. After Nielsen stepped down in 2008, he was replaced by Todd Kozlowski. Kozlowski was Jameson's brother-in-law, and he had been working in ad sales in various outlets up to that point. Well, he had sold advertising uh, with us in the past. Um, his sister had worked with us in his past and he ended up marrying my sister. Okay. You know, so he kind of got into the family that way and I'm not sure how long Todd would have been in that role, but the, at that point the, the alt-weeklies were starting to feel the impacts of all these other things we were just talking about, right? So it was a it was a tough job, a stressful job, to try to keep those things uh, alive, essentially, right? Keep, keep them uh, running in the black, if at all possible. Once Kozlowski stepped in as publisher, changes started rippling down the masthead. In March 2008, C's music editor Matthew Halliday was abruptly canned, leading to an in-house shuffle of the editorial department. A short time later, Kevin Wilson, C's managing editor since 2001, stepped down. The art director who had overseen C's recent design overhaul, Jimmy Jong, also left. This meant that the senior creative positions at the paper would need to be filled. Jong's replacement was found in Michael Nunweiler, who had been mentored by Jong in C's art department for the previous six months. Nunweiler, will note, designed the artwork for this series. He recalls working under Kozlowski in those early days. Todd, the publisher, that guy was wild. I remember the time he told me he was selling speakers out of the back of a car in L.A. I don't know if there's truth to this story, but... It definitely changed my perspective on him. I was just like, oh, shit. Okay. Editorial staff were anxious to see who might be internally promoted into the managing editor's role or who Great West would hire from the outside. Great West went with the latter option. They dipped into the talent pool of unemployed post-media personnel who had been laid off or bought out as the Edmonton Journal suffered through its own reorganization in the face of nosediving ad revenues. In that pool, they found Jeff Holubitsky. Yeah, Jeff had been with the uh, with the Edmonton Journal. Uh, I mean, he's a pure editorial guy, right? A pure a pure news guy, and he also had to steer the ship at a difficult time of year. But he certainly 
knew the news business. I don't know whether Jeff was there when you were there at all. But, yes, he was, yeah. You know, so he would have been able to help young writers particularly become better writers, show them what they needed to do to improve and, and those types of things. Holubitsky had been a reporter at the Edmonton Journal for decades. He decided to take a buyout package in one of the earlier rounds of mass staff changes at Post Media. I can't remember what year that was, 2006, 2007. They came in and offered buyouts, and they wanted to get rid of people, and uh, it was really brutal. Our publisher had, had gone, um, Linda Hughes had retired, and I knew there was going to be a, you know, a bloodbath when she left because you, you know, the wind was blowing that way. And when they offered this and they offered a buyout, you know, I sat down and wrote the pros and cons, and I was working a heck of a lot of nights, like a lot of nights. And maybe it was time the Nina Cordopat thing really got to me. I didn't want to do that part anymore. Nina Cordopat was a 13-year-old who was found murdered on a golf course in Spruce Grove, Alberta in 2005. The emotional toll of covering the crime scene, funeral, and trial left Holubitsky exhausted and pushed him to accept a buyout package from Post Media. And uh, so that, that's why I left, and, and I spent about three months doing not much, and then my wife says, you know, you should really start looking at this. <laughs> Wiser good at that. Do you get on nerves hanging around home? Probably, probably. I, I was quite pleased to do it. It was really nice not to worry about having any deadlines or anything. It was like a relief, you know. So I applied. to the C Magazine. She told me about it. So I applied, and then Todd phoned up and said, hey, do you want to have an interview? You come on down. And I sat down. He didn't ask me one question. He talked for like an hour and a half over lunch at the Blue Plate Diner, I still remember. And uh, at the end, I said, well, what's going to happen? Like, and he said, oh, you got the job, don't worry. So that's when I started there. Great West newspapers felt that Holubitsky's decades-long experience on the Daily Newsbeat would be a good fit for C. When he started the job, he initially felt that it was best to let the editors have control of their sections, despite what he considered a relatively inexperienced and ill-focused edit room. So one of the first things I did is I decided that I would, we would do all layout in-house. And, and, and I gave the artists the responsibility to do it. I, you know, okay, you're the artist, you're the designer, you make this look good, it's on you. You know, I can't offer you money, but I can offer you that. And, and, and they took up the challenge. And the entertainment editor, well, there was actually two to start with, but the entertainment section, I gave it to them. I, you know, you can do the fashion or you can do the entertainment, but I, it's on your shoulders now. No one's going to, you know, if it screws up, it's you. But on the other hand, if it looks good, it's you. And, and, and I found the editors and, and all the news editors, everybody, they responded like magic to this thing. Despite Great West's confidence in Holubitsky, the C staff weren't as certain in how his daily newsroom experience would transfer to an alt-weekly. The worst case scenario being, intentionally or otherwise, that the new management would try to pull the paper away from its alt-weekly audience and into the mainstream. For Paul Matwichuk, the most experienced alt-weekly editor in C's office at the time, Holubitsky's hiring was met with doubt that there was an understanding of the differences between the values of a free alt-weekly and a daily newspaper. And when Jeff Holubitsky took over as the managing editor, I, our personalities didn't really mesh. Uh, so it didn't, it didn't feel like it was necessarily like being run by people who had kind of like a vision for the paper or what, you know, an alternative Edmonton Newsweekly would be like. You know, I don't recall Jeff telling me about things that I couldn't write. I was doing the entertainment section and he was not 
you know, he was like an older guy. He was like an old journal hack, right? And uh, um, when Kevin left uh, and they were looking for, okay, who's going to be the managing editor now? I applied for that job. I'd been managing editor at View, so I felt like, okay, I've got experience writing out weekly. And But they hired Jeff Holubitsky. And the, the advantage he had over me uh, as far as Todd, like Todd, uh, I think genuinely wanted C to be like, you know, like a real alternative paper and he and to, like and he wanted to beef up the news coverage. Uh, he wanted to get into the Association of Alternative News Weeklies. It was something of a sore spot for Great West that View Weekly had been inducted into the Association of Alternative News Weeklies, the AAN, in 2007. C wouldn't gain membership until 2009. Both papers had pursued membership for years. Uh, Jeff had, you know, was able to convince him that he had like this, you know, daily newspaper uh, news gathering experience, and he was going to bring that to the paper. So, you know, fine. So Jeff became the editor, and I think Jeff could tell that I didn't really like have, <laughs> let's say, respect <laughs> for him. Um, uh, I felt like he, you know, didn't really put in a lot of hours, and you know, kind of, and didn't really seem to know what was going on in the city and didn't really deliver much in this, you know, news department. Uh, like, we just were not close or anything. Holubitsky could sense that sentiment at the sea office. One thing that was clear to him was that there were lots of passionate minds working for the magazine, but their goals, interests, and views on editorial process were very different than his own. My biggest shock was the, the disorganization and, you know, the lack of experience. I saw a lot of enthusiasm and I saw a lot of potential. I saw a lot of ta raw talent, very raw talent, and, and, and the willingness to, like, work really, really hard. But I saw a lot of people spinning their wheels because they didn't know how to, like, focus. It, it kind of lacked a focus um, in, in many ways. The ideological differences between the current staff and Holubitsky's vision for the paper quickly became apparent. While C staff would take shots at grumpy old man columnists at mainstream papers, Holubitsky would hold up writers like former journal columnist Scott McKean as examples of, if nothing else, quality writing. Since McKean left the journal in 2013, he served as a city councillor for Edmonton Centre. You know, there was an attitude when I got there that the dailies kind of were old and stodgy and no one really knew what they were doing. They were just a bunch of old farts that, you know, they weren't... And it was like... No, sorry, guys. These are people that have dedicated their lives to writing and so on. They've done it for many, many years. You actually, you may not like what Scott McKean writes, but don't criticize the way he writes it because, you know, he can write circles around anybody here. He can, but learn from what he does, read from what he does, and, and make, you know, take your own way of showing it, you know. So I've had re young reporters come to me and say, how can I be good? And, and you know... Well, there's no secret. You work hard, but ultimately you have to kind of be yourself. And ultimately, you have to be a good person. If you're writing it for all the wrong reasons, ego and so on, that comes through. You know, so I tried to make it a little more professional, I suppose. As ever, C's weekly grind went on with its staff of editors and writers, some with strong personalities, others keeping their heads down. Apart from a period of general editorial strength, page counts and weekly pickup numbers were still shrinking. We, we, we did things there that broke the mold, you know, like our focus sections, print in peril, homelessness in Edmonton, uh, the opening of the art galleries, things like that. If there was something important, we still covered it. But, you know, like we didn't have to run every single movie review that week or every 
we set space aside to cover a bigger issue. And I was really proud of those. I thought those did well. I, thought, I think those did very well, too, in our, uh, the awards we got. You know, I think many of the awards, including the American uh, Alternative Newspaper Award for our cover, and, you know, cover is not just a picture. It's also the, what it's advertising. You know, it's the content as well. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think we had a lot of success. We won a lot of awards, Best Entertainment Section for a Weekly in Canada. A lot of stuff c- happened, you know. We should mention that most of C's awards and honorable mentions were won for content produced in and around 2009. Before that, no one had really considered going after editorial awards. Most weekly staffers weren't even aware of their eligibility for such things. But traditionally, awards are important for journalists, and they were important to Holobitsky. The Canadian newspaper awards that C won for best arts coverage and cover image were for periods when Paul Matwichuk was editor of C's arts sections and Michael Nunweiler headed up the art department. The issue that led to the arts coverage award was Matwichuk's final special edition covering the Edmonton Fringe. Both Nunweiler and Matwichuk would be fired before those awards were ever delivered to the C office. Angela Brunshot, she was great at learning. Some people resisted, didn't want to learn, hear anything I said. And, you know, I couldn't work with them. Prioritizing who he felt he could work with over those whose work was well-suited to an alt-weekly turned out to be something of a misstep for Holobitsky. Morale in the office turned sour, particularly when it came to one of Holobitsky's first new hires in the news department. When Angela Brunshot, C's then-news editor, went on maternity leave, Holubitsky hired Morris Tugis, a former liberal MLA and sometime opinion columnist for the city's North Side Weekly, the Edmonton Examiner, to oversee C's news department. I knew Morris, not personally, but I knew that I, I read his column in the uh, Examiner, which he was the editor of like 15 years, and I'd always read it because it was free, but he was kind of funny. Humor uh, in writers is, is kind of a rare thing. Like somebody that actually can make you laugh, that's, that's kind of important. But it doesn't happen very often, and it goes a long way. And I knew he was funny, and I knew he had like uh, all those years' experience as an editor. And honest to God, bringing experience to that place was not a bad idea. So that's why I brought Morris in. Uh, he was older. I wasn't going to discriminate on somebody because of age, because I'd felt that myself. Like, what's this old fart going to tell us to do anything? Um, Experience can help, and that's why I brought him in. Staffing changes kept coming at sea, and not on the best of terms. When Paul Matwachuk got canned in December of 2009, it wasn't much of a surprise, though the reason wasn't what you might expect. Jeff did eventually fire me for, uh, like... uh, (laughs) <laughs> like a really minor thing, I thought. But um, so there was one issue where uh, I don't know why, but in the in the masthead, I put in like a fake uh, name in the masthead once. I said like uh, headline writer Gags Beasley, which is like a name stolen from a Steve Martin routine. And I don't know why. I think I was just like you know, it's the kind of thing you do when you're at like a university newspaper and you just play around at the margins of. Uh, of of the paper. And I guess I did kind of know in the back of my mind that Jeff didn't really closely look at the pages <laughs> that were going to the paper. I, you know, I, I guess I did kind of know that he wouldn't approve of it, but it felt harmless to me and I knew he wouldn't see it and who cares. And then a couple of weeks later, he calls me into the office and wants to know what's the, you know, what's this? Someone had brought it to his attention. And you know that kind of thing where like you try and like you tell a joke and the other person, like, doesn't perceive it as a joke or sees it in a different way. There is just, like, no convincing otherwise, right? So I think Jeff 
saw that as me putting one over on him. And he really strongly felt that, you know, you can have your fun with your funny headlines, but, you know, there's certain things like the masthead, like you got to be serious about this. And this was just like not proper and professional. I feel like that was maybe like the the beginning of the end. I guess I didn't get fired over that, but I feel like that was sort of like the start of things. And I had, and I had kind of, I, I had been asking for a raise as well, and I wasn't getting a raise. And I kind of felt, you know, I felt like maybe the rain was on the level, but at the same time, they were giving me more to do because they kept firing other people. Mm. And I, you know, I had been brought in to do, I think, like um, the, to edit the film and theater coverage. And then they had me, you know, do music as well, you know. And I thought like I was just, I was like, I was too big to fail, right? They wouldn't be able to to replace it. I was just doing too much for the paper. I was, it was a big job, you know. Uh, Well, that was wrong. They actually did, uh, they actually did fire me uh, and uh, put in someone else. I did turn out to be replaceable after all. But that's the story there. So I don't know if I, I I guess I would have been fired eventually because everyone eventually got fired at sea. Oh, gosh. I mean, who, who can, uh, I think I'll never forget Paul Malvichuk. That guy's a riot. Michael Nunweiler was still leading C's art department at the time. He watched much of the turnover firsthand. Uh, as much as I, as, as I sort of say that laughingly, um, the guy had a keen eye. He would catch so many, like, small, small things that, like, the little details, you know, and, and I really, sort of, you know, I really admire that about him. The problems between Nunweiler and C's management were connected to the shift in the office's power dynamic with Tugas managing the news department. In one instance as news editor, Tugas bypassed the editorial process that had been set in place around artwork, which didn't sit right with Nunweiler. Near the end there, it, like I said earlier, it was different, you know, it was, you really had to fight for like real estate, and, um, for design and like just visuals in general. And, um, then there was a certain certain somebody who was in charge of hiring around there that uh, decided he would bring on one of his friends. And that's all fine and good. That's cool. You want to work with people you know. I get that. But uh, this, this guy that came in felt it necessary to uh, try and say this without sounding like an arrogant asshole. Uh, bypass the art department when commissioning illustrations for the magazine. Uh-huh. And so I caught wind of this and, and wasn't too happy and sent an email that contained a few words that I probably shouldn't have sent and uh, came into work the next day and was called into the office and basically let go. Um, I think the email was sort of the, the straw that broke the camel's back, but because of the um, previous months and sort of the I guess, butting heads of art department and, and uh, editorial and trying to fight to, for the art department and keeping, keeping um, interesting visuals and design in the magazine. Mm-hmm. And so it was basically like, yeah, we're letting you go. And I, I was just like, I think that's probably best for everybody. And, you know, it sucks at the time, but of course it's one of those situations in life where it forces you to move on to the next phase of your life, you know. Morris Tugis declined to be interviewed for this podcast. Nunweiler was fired in June of 2010. Despite bringing accolades to the paper, Holubitsky had removed the magazine's brain trust of experienced alt-weekly staff and found it difficult to find quality replacements. What happened is, as people came and went, 
newspapers became less and less of an attractive thing for people to want to do. So sort of the level of experience and commitment and all those things was really going down. As I'd interview people, at the beginning, I might get like five great candidates. Toward the end, I was lucky, like, well, that guy probably could do it. Maybe, I don't know if that's not fair to everybody, but say one. You know, it was really obvious. And by the time I got to St. Albuquerque Gazette years later, it was really obvious. Uh, people just were not seeing newspapers as a, as a great way to go in life anymore. Michael Hingston, who had been writing for C under Paul Matwichuk's editorial sections, was initially keen to jump at a job posting at the magazine, until he realized there was something unusual about the whole offer. Basically, there was um, a, a job position that was put out where they were going to hire a staff writer at C. And I worked down the street at a different company. I had a copywriting job, editing job that I didn't really like. And I used to come to the C office every week and just linger for half an hour because I wanted to hang out in the office. I wanted to talk to the editors. I wanted to just be around the process of this paper because I loved it. So when this staff writer job came up, I thought, this is perfect. This is my way to actually get into this industry. Staff writing jobs are very rare, and even at the time, were hard to come by. I'm not sure C even had a staff writer before that. I think it may have been a new position. So I came in for an interview with the publisher, and when I sat down, it was pretty clear early on that there was something strange going on in the process, because... Uh, I, I kept talking about how much I wanted to write and I wanted to write about arts and I wanted to do more news writing and I was trying to pitch myself as this kind of Swiss army knife as a writer and the publisher at the time kept saying things like yeah you know writing's going to be a big part of this job but you know there's going to be some editing as well and I remember thinking okay like maybe pitching in from time to time that makes sense and I think it was on my way home it dawned on me that they were actually hiring me for a different job because I had heard separately, so this was when Paul was still there, there was some rumblings where I think he felt he was his job was in under threat and he was still there but it, I remember him and I had become friends by this point I remember him saying he, was, he wasn't sure what was going to happen, he was feeling nervous about it and at some point it kind of dawned on me in this job interview, I think they're hiring Paul's replacement. But they didn't say that, and they didn't advertise it that way. And so I actually went home that night and wrote the publisher an email and just said, just to clarify, you know, I, I would love to work here. I love C. But if this is actually a replace, uh, if you are hiring a replacement for an existing staff member, I don't think I can, I wouldn't feel good about how this process is going. I, I wouldn't want I don't think I would, I would like, I withdraw my name from the, from the application. And, uh... I never heard from them again, but then, you know, three weeks later, by the end of that year, Paul was gone, and there was a new, uh, a new person in his chair. At sea, and to an extent also over at View, the result of losing multiple experienced editors was an increasingly revolving door. The ranks of both papers were padded out with greener talent. This was a boon for emerging writers looking to climb the ladders in the paper's offices, but also left some with a sense that things weren't the same as they used to be. The, the most troubling thing about it for me is that I just see the quality of what is being written by people that were around, you know, long enough ago to care about the creative aspects of music journalism and like the role they had in a, in a record release and promotion and actually like championing a band and all these things that 
were really fun things to do. There's either this cynicism that's just that totally burns them out, or they don't have the the staff to, you know, the editorial staff to really be be a, a positively critical voice in what's getting written. And it's not I'm not blaming anybody for this, but it's like if you don't have an editor, your writing's going to suffer. You mm-hmm. know, so a lot of the things that get written are not as good as they were when you were. You, you had like three editorial levels to go through before it hit the page. And so it went. The magazines had a hard time attracting talent, freelancers were increasingly jumping ship, and the hiring of less experienced editors and the sudden loss of institutional memory was detrimental to the quality of the paper's coverage. That decrease in quality slowly became apparent to the few regular advertisers the magazines had left. Citing ideological or personality differences for the firings may have made it easier to justify layoffs because C needed to cut costs. The paper was getting smaller, running at 24 to 28 pages per week compared to page counts that were double that just a couple of years earlier. The dwindling ad revenue was far from unique to C or other outlets in Edmonton. Print media's previously stable revenue models had been totally upended by the early 2000s. Prior to that, Newspapers had a few main sources of income, subscription delivery, advertising, and classifieds. Alt-weeklies didn't have the first one, they were free to pick up, but levied hard for advertising dollars. There were earlier rumblings about the sea change to come. Other industries, like the music industry, were beginning to grapple with the consequences of online reach and free access to content. In 2005, when Kijiji Canada opened up shop, Their free online listings gutted the newspaper classified sections, already hard hit by Craigslist, which were a major source of revenue for the print industry. This hit everyone hard, but the free weeklies were particularly vulnerable, given that they didn't even have the smallest of safety nets that subscriptions offered other publications. In the years that followed, Google Ads and Facebook advertising continued siphoning away crucial ad dollars from the print industry. And the music industry's own digital woes harmed the weeklies as well. Previously, record stores and labels were regular, consistent advertisers. Then that once-reliable stream of ads just dried up. As a result of all of this, news outlets were forced to restructure. Layoffs and buyouts became a regular, frequent occurrence. Between 2008 and 2018, over 250 Canadian media outlets shuttered or merged. A majority of them were community-based publications. In the papers, coverage of all types fell. For every two articles on Edmonton City Hall in 2008, by 2017 there was only one, a 50% drop-off. According to Public Policy Forum's Mind the Gap report of September 2018, the number of articles on courts and legislatures also dropped by about 50% per edition during this time. Gordon Nielsen recalls seeing the industry changing when he arrived at sea back in 1995. We started to, to see signs with Craigslist and I mean, for the larger publications, you know, in the bigger markets and particularly in the U.S., the classifieds were, were a cash cow. And Craigslist came along and that was like, you know, maybe it, maybe it seemed like overnight at the time or, or in retrospect, but it, it did seem like overnight, bang, there goes a big pile of revenue. And, and then, you know, other, other market factors, in, including primarily the, the marketing budget for uh, uh, dedicated to alternative weeklies uh, uh, by advertising agencies, national advertisers, 
in, in, in their quest to uh, to get the coveted 18 to 34 market started to dry up. Journalism costs money, and that money was drying up. The irony of the situation was that C and View had to change the tactics that were working to retain their existing advertisers, which they had already been fighting to keep from each other for 15 years. Maybe, just maybe, it was the fight that kept them going a lot longer than many expected. Mm-hmm. And I think it was fascinating that Fast Forward, which was was our more successful of our two alt weeklies and wasn't really competing against anybody. There was an, there was the straight actually went into Calgary for a period of time and just couldn't get a leg hold. But um, it was interesting to me that it folded before the others. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it was more reliant on national ad dollars. And when those started to dry up, it, you know, all of a sudden you just couldn't, they weren't viable at all. And that started to happen across the country. And then with, uh, you know, migration of advertising dollars to digital platforms, social media, you know, the, it, you could see this coming. So I would say, okay, here's my bargaining chip. I'm going to spend some money on this particular event that we do, right? Now, how can you help me get my other stuff in there knowing that I have very limited resources. I do not have the size of budget that others would. That's Murray Udis. He moved to Edmonton in 1999 and started working in theater. Now he runs the Edmonton Fringe, the world's second largest fringe festival. He was around for the heyday of weeklies when there was wiggle room to hustle for competitive ad rates by pitting the papers against each other. This allowed arts companies to be able to afford print advertising, perhaps more advertising than they would have under other circumstances. But starting around 2009, just before C Magazine was about to shudder, Udis began noticing a change in his ability to negotiate ad buys with the weeklies. So we want to get behind you. So what if we did this? If you were to say, let's negotiate a sponsorship from the expanse point of view and say, let's get, a, let's get ourselves in the logo barn. Let's, let's, you know, put that on there. And then what I could do is maybe I could take this price that would be for these other ads. And if you stepped up one step for me, I could give you this at that price. Right. So you found there you were treated well in that way. In, yes. In terms of those sort of negotiations. Yes. And the Until the weeklies were a little more in trouble. Mm. And then you could see, you could see the stress. And, and, it, was, and it was like, uh, for me, uh, as, as a producer and as an artist, I was starting to get sad because I'm like, oh, no, are we going to lose these papers because mm-hmm. of this? And then those sort of conversations became harder to have. Yeah, like, I, like I feel like we had a we had a, I feel like we had a pretty good ten year run, right? So I would say that I really saw it kind of breaking into the into the later O's, um, and and then losing C, and then and then my conversation became singular with View, and there was a little less sort of boom. So, Darka Tarnowski, the founder and president of Bottom Line Productions, an Edmonton-based publicity and marketing firm, recalls the stroke of good fortune the rivalry brought for local arts promoters. But we found that they were really supportive of almost everything we did. And part of that also was because we liked to support them with advertising. We were always sort of on that sort of kick with our clients that if you want to get stories, you should also support the publications when you can, Um, whether it be in a special summer edition if you're a festival or, you know, putting some money into those publications, not so that you directly then get an article about that particular thing, but just because they need to survive as well. So we um, liked 
to sort of build those relationships. And we did negotiate pretty, pretty well, because they were always sort of pitted against each other, right? So if one gave us a good deal, we could always say, well, you know, we got a little bit of a better deal with the other one. And, you know, so, you know, hopefully that (laughs) wasn't part of their demise. (laughs) But it was definitely, it was definitely a tactic, for sure. But We did believe in supporting them with money, too. Negotiation with potential advertisers wasn't enough. There just simply weren't enough dollars coming in. Something had to give, and no one was coming to bail out the weeklies. Internally at sea, Nielsen saw the writing on the wall. You know, another fallout of of dueling or combating publications was that it created a, a, a false impression about what this advertising is worth. Mm-hmm. And that client base it just began to believe that, that that's what these ads should cost. And now that they don't have that, that vehicle or, you know, the, now they're probably, they would pay twice as much if they could just have one back. There was a lot of, uh, uh, when, when publications close, uh, regardless of which market, there's a lot of there's always this hue and cry that comes from the whatever readership there was and the community itself. Uh, and by the community, I mean the arts and the, the the base of the community that, to whatever degree, relied on the papers for either um, editorial content or advertising vehicle. But but I say to myself, well, you. You didn't know not enough of you ponied up uh and and at the end of the day if you're not going to buy ads and we're not going to get people picking it up and reading it and seeing it in coffee tables and coffee shops then they're not going to fly and so in a way everybody <laughs> kind of got what they deserve for years both papers fought with the impression that if one paper folded the other would instantly double its ad revenue and finally be able to manage on its own in the local market but what's double of not very much here's Eamon McGrath again it's just so weird looking back on that now and thinking about how dated it all seems because even you know when the when the collapse of, of essentially when the collapse of Canadian arts media happened and all these friends of mine got fired you know, it seemed like now Now it's people don't even read online media. It's like it's all Instagram or it's all uh, Twitter. And, you know, in like probably 18 months, it's going to be something different. For the writers and editors that had left or been fired, it was almost a relief to leave those high pressure and unrewarding spaces. Just as their jobs and contributions were disposed of, some realized that the magazines themselves were just as ephemeral. There and then gone, week after week. Paul Matwichuk recalls the first weeks after his firing from sea. Because I, I was especially curious, because like I, I just especially like the issues immediately after, uh, you know, I just wanted to see like, wow, you know, uh, how <laughs> how are they going? I, I mean, it sounds this is the egotistical way of saying it. Like, how are they going to get along without me? You know, like what are they going to do? And so I guess they did have somebody waiting in the wings. Why didn't I realize this? That they're not just going to fire me and then scramble to figure out who's going to replace me. They had somebody uh, uh, there, and you know, I thought it was fine. It was a different, you know, like a different editorial outlook, but not like you know something that would make you recoil in horror at what they were uh, uh, doing. But, you know, I think I, 
uh, after, you know, maybe like looking at the first few issues and sort of, you know, grumble, 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 I just kind of stopped reading it and moved on. And from the outside of the office, the writers and artists like Eamon McGrath started to see where it was all going. I mean, it's we're all human, like people fuck up. But but my point is that as the quality starts to suffer, less and less people read it. And as less and less people read it, you know, social media becomes more and more of this Goliath kind of figure. And then, you know, it the, the spiral sort of continues and everything just keeps going to shit. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it was like the last nail in the coffin of an era that had already ended by the time that I was involved in it. For many, the period of the paper's decline and the survival strategies implemented by management didn't feel good. No matter the manner of exit, these periods at the magazine left most staff burnt out and a little bit heartbroken. To be honest, making this part of the series really sucked, and not just our own recall of the tougher years of the papers but also in rehashing those times with our interview subjects. There were a number of people who declined to be interviewed for this part, some who did great writing and groundbreaking work while they were at the magazines. For some, it still hits a nerve. Next time on A Tale of Two Weeklies. After over a decade of bitter rivalry, the battle for the street boxes between C Magazine and View Weekly abruptly ended in 2011 but it didn't end in quite the way that anyone would have expected. So uh, essentially I was taken out for lunch two weeks before and said, keep this quiet, but in two weeks, this is what's happening. It was, it was an awkward, just an awkward day for sure. We didn't need to have two full teams. Right. So obviously cuts were gonna be made. It's kind of like working with friends that just happened to might take your job. By the time they had the news meeting without me, I just put my jacket on and I went home. And I never went back. This animosity is kind of pathetic. I, I think the, pro the product should be as good as we can do and put all of our egos behind us because we all have one role, is to create good content so people read it. I didn't want to be in a position to get in the way. I guess I could have helped out from time to time. But uh, it, it's, it was his. It wasn't mine That it wasn't, I don't think, the two of them competing that, that had any relation to the fact that they're no longer here. Mm -hmm. It was just the world changed. A Tale of Two Weeklies is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Music is by Luke Thompson. Artwork is by Michael Nunweiler. This series was made possible with project support from the Edmonton Heritage Council. Special thanks to Edmonton Community Foundation for use of their recording studio.